be some dispute about that, but very fast, <laughs> but, but a fascinating story. Ashley Randall, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Banfield starts much. now. everybody, welcome to the show. It's December 11th, and I'm so glad that you're here with me tonight. Uh, this, is an, um, this is an important day. You might think December 11th. What, uh, it's not the day that would live in infamy. Uh, it's not, we're not at Christmas. What is December 11th? Um, but if you're me, December 11th, 15 years ago, uh, was a monumental day in the Casey Anthony case because it was the day that Kaylee, a little two-and-a-half-year-old girl, uh, her body was discovered. And then we knew she wasn't missing. Kaylee Anthony had died and someone had made it happen because the way that little girl was found um, was very specific. She was wrapped in a laundry bag. She was dumped in a swamp. She had a heart sticker over her mouth, duct tape around her head. She'd been murdered. And so this day for 15 years has been a sort of a thorn in the side of so many people who are so frustrated with that case and how it ended. Ultimately, her mom was charged with murder. Ultimately, her mom was tried for murder and acquitted. And Casey Anthony, to this day, remains a very mysterious person. Uh, we have uncovered some extraordinarily uh, unexpected new information in this case, something that no one has heard before because the person who saw what he saw never said anything. And the information really takes the defense theory, what they presented in court, that Kaylee wasn't murdered, she accidentally died in the backyard pool, and then Casey's father, George, covered it up. And, and tonight we have information that really turns that on its end and really disproves it. If you believe the person who you're going to hear from tonight, um, it's coming up in just a few moments, but you're also going to hear some other exclusive information about how Casey marks this day, this 15-year anniversary, how she marks these milestones. And you might be very surprised to hear uh, what we have uncovered regarding that. Then also, if you are a fan of the Marvel, Marvel movies, uh, I love Ant-Man, one of my faves. And then there's Creed Three. It's another big movie that the star uh, starred in. Uh, Jonathan Majors is huge. I mean, he plays a villain in a lot of movies, and he has got this trajectory that was like launching him into the stratosphere in the Marvel world. A couple of big, big movies planned for him. Instead, he's in a courtroom, and the stuff that's happening in that courtroom is having a huge effect on what you see on the screen right now and whether you're going to see him on the screen again. Is that fair? Before you say yes or no, you should know that there are some text messages that have come into the trial against him. He's accused of beating up his girlfriend. She's his ex-girlfriend now. Uh, text messages that in any other case would not have come in, but in this case they did, and it's his attorney's fault. Um, but <laughs> right when you thought the plot was going to go one way, today something happened that flipped the script, and I'm going to tell you all about that. And then I'm going to take you to uh, a, a, a classroom where, look, is there a safer place on earth than a classroom in a school in the middle of the day? Should be the safest place on earth, except for the teacher who was beaten within an inch of her life, sexually assaulted and left for dead. And we have just gotten our hands on the video that shows the 16-year-old student of hers that did it. 
And when I say did it, he admitted and he's been sentenced. You're going to find out what happened. You're going to hear his public defender. But the video shows him walking towards that classroom. And we're going to show you the rest of it, including her poking her head out and then trying to get out of that classroom. It's a 90-minute attack. It is astounding that she survived. His public defender joining me live on the show tonight. But let's just start here. Let's start with the milestone. It was on this date, December 11th, 15 years ago tonight, 2008, that the remains of two-year-old Kaylee Anthony were found inside a laundry bag in a wooded area, some called it a swamp, near the Anthony family home in Orlando, Florida. Kaylee had been missing for about six months, since at least the previous June. And her mom, Casey, Casey Anthony, would spend the next two and a half years fighting a murder charge against her in a sensational trial that ended in a Stunning acquittal. How do I know? I sat there in the courtroom. Jaw picked up off ground. But by now, you would think there really isn't a lot more that we could know about this case. This was splashed across every single headline in America. Television, newspapers, digital, everything. But this week, I'm going to share with you uh, some special pieces of never-before-heard information about the trial and about the defendant. And it comes to us from people who've had exclusive access to Casey Anthony before, during, and after her unbelievable trial. It includes how Casey Anthony behaved away from the spotlight during the search for her daughter, what went on behind closed doors at her family home, uh, what she said, what she did when the media could not see her. New information has also come to light about the challenges that her lawyers faced just while trying to do their job and have confidential meetings with her at the jail. And then the famous reason why they had to cover their mouths while they spoke in the courtroom during the trial and at the jail. And then finally, how Casey plans uh, to mark this tragic anniversary. My first guest uh, can tell us volumes. Before I bring him in, you need to know something. You need to know that in August of 2008, one month after Kaylee was reported missing, Casey was arrested for child neglect and lying to the police, but she made bail and she came home. And then for the next eight days, she was holed up inside her parents' house in Orlando until she was arrested again. This time it was for stealing uh, and cashing checks that were belonging to a friend. Uh, but for those eight days, Casey Anthony was out of the public eye, except for the occasional trip to her lawyer's office. Um, everything she did, and she said, was, was secret. It was unknown to the public, and it has remained unknown all of these years. <clears throat> but there was someone else inside that house at the time who did not have the last name Anthony. It was Casey's former bodyguard. It seems that the bondsman who'd put up the half-million-dollar bail, was a little bit worried about his investment, so he made sure that there was always somebody around to keep an eye and an ear on Casey, and that someone was able to see and hear a lot. His name is Rob Dick, and he is currently a private investigator and a bounty hunter and a bail expert. But in 2008, he was that bodyguard, holed up inside the Anthony house, eight days watching and listening to everything that Casey Anthony did and everything that Casey Anthony said. Here's where I'm going to take a bit of a right turn. <clears throat> Perhaps the most jaw-dropping thing that was said during those eight days actually didn't come from Casey, 
but came from her father, George. Um, Casey fought her murder charge by suggesting that little Kaylee, far from being killed, instead accidentally drowned in the backyard pool. And she accused her father of finding that little body and covering up what she insisted was just an accidental death. Tragic. Rob Dick, Casey's bodyguard, joined me earlier for this exclusive interview and a revelation that throws Casey's story, her entire defense theory, into doubt. Rob, can you tell me about the, the first morning that Casey had been home after spending a month in jail? Uh, she's back in the home with George and Cindy, and you witnessed something that morning that profoundly uh, changed how you look at the, the defense case that, uh, that Casey's lawyer raised. Yeah, she'd been released the evening before, and we'd gone home, and we awoke to a disturbance between George going after Casey. I mean, he's shaking her, and he's saying, you know, you're going to tell me where my granddaughter is. I mean, he's yelling. And we actually had to kind of pull him off and separate him. And Casey, you know, is not showing any emotion over the incident, more just yelling back at her dad, you know, and she said, stop acting like an effing cop. And it was that moment so that, what's, you know, we knew. You know, that's fascinating because on one hand, you, the defense raised the case that George was abusive and, and that this baby, you know, had died in the pool and George abused Casey into keeping a secret and, and keeping it hidden. But this, you know, on its surface, you think sounds abusive. But what it really sounds like is that it showed George truly didn't know where this child was, that it's it's impossible that the child had died in the pool and that George had covered it up by by the way he was demanding forcefully from Casey, tell us where the baby is. Exactly. I mean, he wanted answers, and it wasn't a show for us. I mean, this was raw emotion coming out that he wanted to know what happened, and she knew, well, he knew that she knew whatever it was at that moment. You know, because this is the very beginning. So you're dispatched to be in that home, basically to watch over that she doesn't skip out on bond. You're basically a bodyguard to make sure she doesn't leave. Um, did you get any sense of the dynamics in the family? Uh, did you get a feeling that Casey was terrified of George, the way she depicted it in her defense uh, in, in the courtroom, or the way Jose Baez did? Not at all. I mean, Casey was as happy as could be. And that was another problem is just her attitude of, you know, we nicknamed her the cruise director because every day she was just happy-go-lucky. And she's not concerned about, you know, her dad. Cindy does, you know, put the foot down and kind of rule the house, but she's not worried about her dad. So did you get a sense as well that um, George and Cindy still believe that the child was maybe out there somewhere and that Casey... Um, well, you give me your sense of, of if the story was true that the child is still missing and there's no child who died in the backyard pool, as the defense asserted, what were the dynamics like? Like, who was concerned about a missing baby and who wasn't? Well, George was 100% looking for a missing granddaughter. Cindy was doing the same thing, but Cindy, I think her focus was kind of a little bit coddling of Casey and 
in her mind, trying to get the answers from her the best way she knew. I mean, obviously George and Cindy, you know, have been with Casey her entire life. And she felt that if she pushed her for answers or pushed her, she would in her own words, close up and they would never find out. George, on the other hand, was very aggressive. You know, he wanted answers. He wanted to know where she was. And yeah, nobody believed at that moment that anything was bad. So you came out of eight days in that house where none of us uh, got to see anything. I mean, these people were, they were in hiding because of the the mob scene that had gathered outside that house. But, But you were inside and you came away from that eight days literally in close proximity with the Anthony family, um, believing it was impossible that that child died in the pool and that the Anthony's, uh, George and Cindy, knew it all along? Oh, 100%. I mean, from the point of the first night, you know, she's in custody 30 days, so she's not able to find out what's going on, you know, where they at on the searches, what has come in, what have calls have happened. And there was no discussion of that. She never asked. She never cared about the search for her missing daughter. George was the one that was out there putting up flyers and trying to contact people. What was the first thing Casey said when she came home? Um, the, the night she literally left jail and walked into that, that home of George and Cindy's. Yeah, it's a silent ride with her and Baez and another attorney. We pull into the garage. It's very emotional. You know, Cindy's crying. She rushes up and hugs her. You know, you'd expect a mother to be, okay, where are we at? What's going on? What have you heard? None of that. The very first words out of Casey's mouth was, what's for dinner? You know, jail food sucks. She she didn't ask what's happening with the search for Kaylee? She didn't, she showed no concern about where the status was of the, of the, of the missing child? She never asked the status. How often did George and Cindy bring up? the status of the missing child? Well, it was kind of set up through bias that nobody was supposed to question her or talk. The problem is, is Casey can't keep her mouth shut either. So there's conversation, but it's not really a questioning. It's kind of more like, you know, under Cindy's rule, you know, let her tell the story, let her bring up whatever, and just kind of a little bit of back and forth. So there's not a lot that's out there about, you know, a missing child, which, again, isn't normal. Did you have any kind of conversations with her while you were in that home? Yeah, there's there's normal talk. Um, you know, Baez wanted no communication. He laid out ground rules, even with George and Cindy, that nobody's supposed to talk unless he's in the room. You know, he has to be privy to everything. Um, but, again, you, Casey can't help but kind of be the star of the show. And she's going to talk. She's going to talk about, you know, anything that's on TV at that time, things that were coming out in the news, she'd make comments about. And, you know, it's just frustrating from the outside of, you know, I'm just sitting there to take care of the bond and make sure nothing happens. But you really see a different side of seeing the family interact. Can I ask you, um, in covering the case and being immersed in it and being in that courtroom every single day, for that entire trial. I came out with the impression that Casey is one of the most exquisite liars I've ever come across. And I wondered if you got the same impression and if there were any kind of specific anecdotes from just remarkable 
lying and maybe forgetting about what lies she's told and which ones she hasn't. If, if you have any examples. I think the amazing thing was that she lies for no reason. So, you know, most people might lie to cover up something or not, you know, be found out about something, but she was lying her whole life. And she kind of lived in this fantasy world where I don't believe she's that great of a liar. I just believe that she's lied for so long. She had a grab bag of lies to pull out whenever. And that's what was so confusing. I think from the investigation standpoint, because you know, she had named people that didn't exist, but people had heard these names forever. Um, but at the same time, because she lies so much, she's also not good at keeping track of it. And she can con- contradict herself, you know, numerous times, even all the way up to today. The main one that we saw was in one of them bringing her from Baez's office back to the house. She had stated one day that, oh, I'm so full. I had all these wings because, you know, the media was trying to, by lunch and trying to kind of get in with the bias team to try to get possibly an interview or some insight. And so they were, you know, buying meals and turning them in, you know, for, for them to eat at lunch. And bias was always counseling her that she's not coming off with the emotion in front of us, in front of the family and to the public of a missing child's mother. So the very next day on the way back to bias, She's acting like she doesn't feel good. She says her stomach hurts. And I ask her what's wrong. And she says, oh, I just, you know, been sick these last couple of days. I can't eat. You know, I just, I'm so worried about her. You know, and it's like, you're sitting here thinking, you don't remember the conversation on the ride yesterday that you said you were so full for meeting. So she loses track. Are you surprised, Rob, here we are 15 years later, and Casey Anthony's name and her story is as fascinating to us now as it was um, when she was at the top of every headline? No, because I think because no one's been found guilty, and I think pretty much everybody knows who was responsible, I think it's that wonder that's just going to go on and on, unfortunately. I mean, there's really no closure, it seems, because, you know, I mean, even with the double jeopardy, she could have came out and told a real story. But everything she says, you can't believe. So it's hard to figure out the truth. I mean, she gives little pieces, but she just doesn't tell the truth. Rob Dick, I'm so thankful and appreciative um, that you took the time to speak with us. It's such a sad anniversary, um, but the mystery, as you said, just doesn't seem solved. So many thanks for your observations and for sharing them. Thank you. I want to bring in someone who's been following the Casey Anthony case from the very beginning, the person who was literally seated next to me in the courtroom during the entire trial, the senior reporter, crime reporter for The Messenger, Steve Helling. Steve, it's good to see you. I wanted to get your reaction right away to what you heard Rob Dick report about that moment between George Anthony and Casey Anthony where he fought with her and said, tell me where that child is. You know, it's really consistent to the things that I'd always heard about Casey and and George and the way that they were interacting during that period of time. So, you know, what Rob says to me does have the ring of truth to me. Um, You know, we weren't in there in that house. You know, you and I weren't in that house, but he was. And what he's saying certainly seems to make sense to me. 
What did you uncover uh, for The Messenger after speaking to um, a close family friend, a source, about how uh, Casey marks these milestones, these, these very, very sad moments? Um, today is, you know, 15 years to the day since that child's remains were found. She doesn't. She doesn't mark these milestones. She doesn't mark the milestones of her acquittal or of Kaylee's death or of Kaylee's birthdays or anything. She just doesn't do it. And, you know, we've known that for years. She didn't celebrate anything for the 10 years. She didn't, she didn't commemorate anything. Um, so I don't think we should be surprised that she doesn't do it. Um, you know, she has said before, you know, she said it on the record when she spoke to the Associated Press that, you know, she doesn't care what we think of her. She doesn't care what we, how we judge her. Um, and so she's not going to do some sort of um, commemoration just to make herself look good, you know, because she's, that's just not who she is. And the sad thing is that, you know, I know and you know that, you know, if one of our children, you know, God forbid something happened to them, um, you know, we would be thinking about that every year on the anniversary of that. But that's just not what Casey's doing. Yeah, there would be something, some way that we would consistently uh, remember. And, you know, I think right. it, poor George and Cindy, right? They, they probably feel every day that Kaylee is lost in, in so much of the Casey Anthony, Anthony saga. And today is the day where Kaylee was, was found. Um, speaking of that, the place where she was found for years, um, there, were, there were things that were left behind from the public. Obviously, so many people um, connected to this case and wanted to somehow be there in some way. And you recently went to the location where her remains were found. What did you see? Yeah, I went there um, on Saturday. Uh, and when I drove past, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember when you left town after the, you know, after the trial. You and I were there every single day. But, you know, you drove past the house, you drove past the, the place where that was, and they used to have, you know, a kind of a pretty big memorial. There were hundreds of stuffed animals and roses, and there was a big cross that had the name Kaylee on it. All of that is gone. Um, now, uh, yeah, I mean, right there, you can see all the things that they had. Um, you know, that's all gone. The area has kind of overgrown, and uh, there are a few stuffed animals, there's a little statue of a frog, um, but there's not the memorial that there used to be. You know, there was talk at the time that they were going to, somebody was going to buy that land and they were going to actually make kind of a shrine to her. That never happened. So if you didn't uh, stop and really look for the few stuffed animals that I found, um, you wouldn't know that anything had happened at that site. Well, it's hard to get in there as well. I mean, it is very thick and you would have to really struggle your way uh, through that brush. And depending on the time of year, it is swamp and impassable, which is why it took so long for them to, to find uh, her, little, her little body. Steve Helling, you know, um, sad that it's on an occasion like this, but always good to see you. And I so appreciate your work as always. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you. Um, we also have a lot more details about the Casey Anthony trial to share with you um, after the break. A fresh look at the places that we just talked about that captivated us during the spectacle that was the Casey Anthony trial. The swamp where Casey's remains were found. What it looks like now. The jail where her mother, Casey, was held. And the courthouse 
where Casey was tried and acquitted. And tomorrow, an exclusive interview with someone who knows this case better than anyone, Casey Anthony's lawyer, Cheney Mason. Tomorrow is Cheney's 80th birthday. We're going to look back at the case and find out if he has any regrets about defending the person some have called the most hated mom in America. I know that she she uh, lied about some things, uh, about credit card use and so forth. I got it. But killing the daughter is not something that Casey Anthony did, in my opinion. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. 15 years ago today, the remains of two-year-old Kaylee Anthony were discovered. Her death and her mother's murder trial kicked off a frenzy, a media frenzy, that people still to discuss and they debate um, and they try to figure out to this day. There are a handful of locations that played a really big part in this trial, like the swamp that Steve Helling just told me about, where he visited and found that there are today, 15 years later, little teddy bears and mementos still being left in her honor. As well, the Anthony's home, and the jail where Casey was locked up in solitary, as well as the courthouse where the trial happened. News Nation's Alex Capriello revisited those spots and discovered a couple of surprises. Over the passage of time, 15 years since baby Kaylee Anthony was found, some things have changed and others have not. George and Cindy Anthony still live right here on Hope Spring Drive in Orlando. At the time, for weeks and weeks, rows and rows of media packed these streets beside aggravated Americans who demanded answers, hurled insults, and even spat at George Anthony. Six months after her disappearance, baby Kaylee was found here, approximately a mile from where Casey lived with her parents. At the time of her death, midway through the Florida summer, this area would have been hot, overgrown, and swampy. But by December 11, 2008, the area had dried up. A linesman had found her body wrapped in a blanket with duct tape covering her skull and mouth. For about three years, Casey Anthony lived here in the Orange County Jail. The seriousness of her situation was likely sinking in. She was accused of murdering her daughter in the first degree and could face the death penalty. In retrospect, many people tell me that the prosecution likely overcharged her for these crimes, that it was too difficult for a jury to find her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt without a lack of direct evidence. For six weeks, the high-profile Casey Anthony trial took place right here in the Orange County Courthouse. The prosecution pulled friends, family, and forensic experts to the stand to testify. Defense attorney Jose Baez spun a web of family secrets and child molestation, saying Kaylee accidentally drowned in a pool, and Casey's only guilt was helping her father cover it up. It worked. 
Casey was acquitted of her murder. She now lives in South Florida, working for a private investigator. Her freedom is a right afforded to her by the U.S. Constitution as an acquitted defendant. But still, 15 years later, many Americans believe a murderer was allowed to walk away from her crimes without penalty. Ashley? Our thanks to Alex Capriello for that. We have even more exclusive, never-before-heard details about the Casey Anthony trial coming your way on this very sad 15-year anniversary of the discover of Kaylee's body. Tomorrow on the show, I'll be joined by a very special guest, Cheney Mason, Casey Anthony's attorney. He's got a lot to share with us, including the real reason why the defense table was moved during the trial, why Casey and her lawyers constantly covered their mouths in the courtroom, but also in the jail, and what happened to them in the jail. And more importantly, what he thinks about our guest's bombshell revelation tonight that George Anthony angrily confronted Casey about the whereabouts of her daughter, which contradicts the defense's case entirely. That's tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on News Nation. And then still to come tonight, a high school teacher beaten almost to death and sexually assaulted in her own classroom by one of her own students. Tonight, the surveillance video that has never been public until now. And my question to you, is this violent teenager going away to prison for long enough? See the video, hear the brave teacher's description of how she survived, and I will talk to the lawyer who tried to keep her attacker out of jail. All of that next. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'll give you a bit of a warning here. I'm about to talk about a violent sexual attack that almost killed a teacher in the one place that she was supposed to be the safest. Her own school, her own classroom, broad daylight, middle of the day. So... Word to the warning if that's a trigger for you. I want to show you this surveillance video. It's just now been made public, year and a, a year and eight months actually, after this near fatal sex and assault. Sex assault and assault. This is El Dorado High School in Las Vegas. And the kid pacing the halls is 16-year-old Jonathan Martinez Garcia. Video shows him trying to enter a locked classroom, then turning away and walking back down the hall. If you look, you can see a teacher peeking out. He goes back towards the classroom returns and actually now enters the classroom, and that's where the attack begins. You can even at one point see the teacher after he enters, and the attack begins. You can see her trying to get out into the hallway, and then ultimately she's dragged back in. It's just very, you just see her there just a little bit. She's dragged back in. Without warning, this kid beat her unconscious, punching her and kicking her. He strangled her with an electrical cord. He stripped off of her clothes, and he cut her wrists. 
He pulled a heavy bookcase down on top of her and then sat on it trying to asphyxiate her while saying the words, why don't you just die? He also sexually assaulted her. Again, this attack was midday and it lasted for an hour and a half, 1.30 to 3 p.m. Classes were out, school was mostly empty. After the attack, it's really weird. Cameras just caught him walking out of the classroom with his head down and then walking out those back doors of the hallway there. School employee found the teacher, ended up calling 911. So we do have a a closer uh, picture of Jonathan Martinez Garcia. There he is, 17 years old now, a year later. And he admitted everything, pleaded guilty to attempted murder, attempted sexual assault, and battery with a deadly weapon. His sentence, 16 to 40 years in prison, not in juvenile. He was treated as an adult. And the teacher who was so brutally assaulted, sexually molested, and almost killed, she spoke at the sentencing, and for privacy reasons, uh, she only uses one name. Have a listen. Since it happened, there hasn't been a single night where I haven't dreamt about the attack. I would wake up in a new spot and position each time, knowing that he had just dragged my limp, near lifeless body into a different part of the classroom to do whatever he so chose to do with my body as I lay unconscious. He had beaten my body so badly that I could no longer fight. In just a moment, I'm going to talk with Martinez Garcia's defense attorney. But first, I want to show you how this violent teenager was arrested because the police caught up with him just a short time after that attack that left the teacher nearly dead on the classroom floor. And this is what the police body cam looked like. Possible suspect sighting. He sees a suspect outside of his residence right now. Hey, driver, turn the car off. Turn the car off. Jonathan, step out of the car. And you're seeing correctly, the kid that just sexually assaulted and beat a teacher nearly to death was arrested wearing his high school ROTC uniform. I want to bring in now, uh, if I can, Tyler Gaston, uh, Las Vegas defense attorney who represented Jonathan Martinez Garcia. Tyler, thank you so much for, for being here. The state wanted a minimum of 22 years and you wanted probation. So um, win, lose or draw on this? Well, uh, I mean, I feel like it's a loss, certainly. But uh, I guess I'll, I'll just kind of talk about the disparity there between what I asked for and uh, what happened and what the state was asking for. Uh, but I've heard on the show a couple times, obviously, referring to him as a violent teenager. And I think while he did this violent act, I think that misses the mark. I think it misses uh, the situation a little bit. Obviously, what this teacher went through is tragic and sad and um, certainly regrettable, of course. But just to clarify, Jonathan, to add a little bit of history here, Jonathan's not a sexual deviant. He's not uh, causing problems. He's not committing other crimes. He doesn't get in trouble at school. He doesn't get in trouble at all. A lot of times you see with these would-be so-called violent teenagers, these budding monsters, so to speak, you see them have other kind of crimes they commit, other kinds of examples of sexual deviancy and whatnot. You don't have anything like that with Jonathan. In fact, he was a kid just like any other kid. He, you see him in his J- junior ROTC uniform because the day of the incident, he was on his way to an award ceremony to, for junior ROTC. He was mostly an AB student. He was into robotics. He had won an so award for what uh, science. Well, I mean, right. the, you're so, describing someone who was not the monster that absolutely was in that classroom. You said tragic, sad, regrettable. Exactly. I'll add horrific. So what happened? Sure. sure. He, so he had asthma his whole life. He, uh, 
gets prescribed an asthma medication called Monolucast uh, in November of 2021. Monolucast now comes with an FDA box warning label that can cause neuropsychiatric adverse events in juveniles. Otherwise, probably known as psychosis in juveniles, hallucinations that can't be controlled, aggressive tendencies. These are all side effects of the medication. Side effects Jonathan's not aware of. His parents certainly aren't aware of. The doctor didn't tell them about. These are side effects that I believe the, the manufacturer of these drugs are being sued in a class action for. And you see his behavior change immediately after starting on, on singular, this monolucast. He immediately can't sleep. He's doing anything to stop from falling asleep. He's cleaning late hours of the night. He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't want to hang out with his family. He's gaining weight. He's having night terrors constantly, horrific Tyler, dreams at night. If, if, if I give you the benefit of the doubt on this, that, you know, that the, the singular made him do it, what about these smirks in the courtroom? He's smiling and smirking in the courtroom. Clearly, he's not on singular in the courtroom. Sure. Let me respond in two ways. First, you don't have to give me the benefit of the doubt because on an exam, on, on, in preparation for sentencing, you have to do something called a psychosexual evaluation where the state's evaluator evaluates him and calculates a risk to reoffend. Uh, in that you, in order to be eligible for probation, you can't come back as a high risk to reoffend. The state's own evaluator, independent of me, paid for by the prosecutions, the whole state of Nevada, calls me and puts it in his report too that he's concerned that this behavior seems to be indicative of the side effects of monolucast that you're noticing and other things. Because as soon as he's taken off the monolucast and CCDC in the jail, immediately you have no problems. He's shy, he's soft-spoken, has no behavior issues at all. When he's on the monolucast, you have problems. Before he was on it, nothing. And now that he's off it, nothing. And that's from the state's own evaluator. Now, to answer your question, first of all, I think it's misleading. He's not smirking in court at all. Don't forget he is a child, he's in court, court is long. It's hours and hours and hours long. And you, this is him addressing the court, indicating his name and uh, being polite and shy and okay. scared. He's not, there's, you also don't understand what the courtroom's like, too, by the way, on a case like this. The courtroom is packed. There's tons of people. There's other cases. There's other lawyers. There's marshals. There's cameras everywhere. The kid is not smirking. He is just a child who's scared in court. Okay. Well, I appreciate you giving us the information, Tyler Gaston. It's a sad case, and as a defense attorney, it's a tough one. And you know, you're doing, you're doing God's work by being a defense attorney. I always say, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Still to come, he plays a villain on the big screen, but now he's playing the most important role he's ever going to play in his lifetime: defendant. And there's been one plot twist after another for actor Jonathan Majors. On Friday, jurors in his domestic assault trial heard some pretty damning text messages that he sent to his ex-girlfriend. But today, a supporting player took center stage and completely flipped the script. Story's next. Jonathan Majors is really good at playing a bad guy on the big screen. But the jury is still out on his off-screen image, and the fate of his career for that matter. And that's because an actual real-life jury in Manhattan is hearing charges that Major violently attacked his then-girlfriend, Grace Jabari, back in March. Uh, the two were apparently in a chauffeured SUV when Jabari supposedly saw a text message from another woman on Major's phone and grabbed it, and allegedly Majors responded by fracturing Jabari's finger, twisting her forearm, and hitting her on the side of the head. Those are the allegations. On Friday, the jurors heard a series of text messages from back in September of last year. That's a long, long time before this particular fighting question ever happened. And in those texts, 
Majors appears to be telling Jabari not to get medical care for a head injury. Let me actually read to you what what Majors wrote at the time. Um, Quote, they will ask you questions, and as I don't think you actually protect us, it could lead to investigation even if you do lie and they suspect something. Uh, Jabari apparently replied to him, I will tell the doctor I bumped my head if I go. I'm going to give it one more day because I can't sleep and I need some stronger painkillers. That's all. Why would I tell them what really happened when it's clear I want to be with you? Those messages had been sealed and they never would have seen the light of day in front of this jury if Major's own lawyers had not been so aggressive when they questioned his ex-girlfriend on the stand. Uh, They questioned why she was partying after this most recent SUV alleged attack and why she was vague with the police and the doctors about her injuries. And so the judge ruled, well, those questions do something called opening the door. You're going to go there? Fine. They get to go there from way back then. (laughs) It opens the door to the prior case with the head injury and the text messages. And that would be a very bad finale, as they say in uh, showbiz. It would be a bad finale for Jonathan Majors and for the whole case, if it weren't for the witness today. Because the, the script just flipped today. The chauffeur who was driving that SUV testified that the ex-girlfriend, Jabari, was actually the aggressor that night, not Majors, the actor. Uh, the driver said that she blew up at him and that he tried to get away. And the actual quote is is that he was not doing anything. The driver said, quote, she was doing it. And he went on to say, I had a feeling that the girl had hit the boy. But, it's always a twist, right? Uh, The driver did admit that he was looking straight ahead and didn't actually see, you know, what was was happening behind him. So Majors is uh, facing two counts right now of misdemeanor assault and two counts of harassment. And if convicted, he could face like a year year in jail. Uh, But that doesn't even scratch the surface of what could happen to his career, which was honestly, was on the verge of exploding into the Marvel Universe. All sorts of stuff that was all ready to go. Like, man, huge career. Huge career was coming. We'll see. We'll watch. So coming up next, I'm going to take you back uh, to that that place in Orlando um, 15 years ago today, where little Kaylee Anthony was found. Her body discovered kicking off what would be the murder charges against her mother and a trial where mom would be acquitted. But 15 years later, you would think there'd not be much left there, not much of a memorial, and you would be wrong. Steve Helling has the pictures. We're putting them on for you next. We're going to leave you tonight with some new photographs of a makeshift memorial to Kaylee Anthony, whose remains were finally found after months of searching 15 years ago today. Our friend Steve Helling from The Messenger uh, went to the site, and this is what he saw. And he reports that the site has become overgrown and unkempt as the years have gone by, where thousands of people once left flowers and notes and stuffed animals This is what remains today, just a couple of waterlogged toys, but some of them you can see are fairly new. Kaylee was found less than a half mile from the Anthony family home. But the messenger says that Casey Anthony, Kaylee's mom, has not been to this location where her baby's remains were discovered since 2022. Uh, Casey, as you know, was acquitted of Kaylee's murder. 
and uh, the mystery remains. Except for the fact that tonight you heard from a bodyguard named Rob Dick who said within eight days of her being released from jail, he witnessed something in that home where Casey had come home and was holed up with her mom, Cindy, and her dad, George. And that bodyguard witnessed George Anthony aggressively demanding from Casey, where is that child? Now think about this for a moment. How could that be possible if as Casey and her defense team posited, George was the one that pulled the poor child and her body out of the pool. And that's how Casey died. Kaylee died. How could that be possible? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.